the local time is 10.20 a.m. Please keep your seatbelt fastened and carry on items put away until we arrive at the gate and the captain turns off the fastened seatbelt sign. Please use caution when opening the overhead bins as items tend to move during flight. With Travel Lows. Late nights with Travel Lows. Today's show might be just a little different. It's one of those episodes where we couldn't find the time to meet together and record. I've been traveling all week, staying in New York and Boston, and Lowe's has been on the other side of the continent in California. But when these things happen, we do what we always do. We just improvise. This time, it all starts with a listener question. Here's Pavel, a communication designer all the way from Toronto. When playing video games, one might be in a certain rank, for example, silver. But they'll always say, I'm in silver right now, but I play like gold or platinum rank player. I feel like I see a lot of that going on everywhere else in life. There might be a developer with an impressive array of languages listed on the resume, or a designer that claims to know all there is to know about user experience. How humble does one have to be when it comes to forward-facing self-image? And do you think that being honest is a better way of going about things? It's a fairly complex problem, but I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, how you yourself figure out where the crippling of imposter syndrome stops and boasting begins. This is something I fight with on a day-to-day basis, and I'd like to hear two very intelligent people give me their opinion on the issue. Have a great late night, thank you, and keep on hacking. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, man. It's uh, it's late night for me. Is it late night for you? It's 8 a.m. here. It's 8 a.m.? Where are you? I'm in Sydney again. You're in, you're in Australia? <laughs> Yeah, dude. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm in Boston right now. Uh, I'm playing with you. I'm still in California. It's 8 p.m. Oh, you, you trickster. Just in case this is the first time you're tuning into this podcast, there are, in fact, two hosts of the show. I'm calling Los, my best friend and the other half of the show. Los is one of the most confident people I know, and I want to see if Pavel is right and that Los's confidence is just false bravado masking the imposter inside. Hey, I got a question for you. Remember a, a while ago we did an episode and you were talking about you got your confidence from your mom? Yes, I remember that. Okay. Um, do you think that do you think that you can be overconfident, and is that a bad thing? Um, yeah, so confident people, uh, they're like myself, they, like a lot of confident people tend to be kind of like uh, leaders or inspirers, like when they take that exam, you know, the whole like, my uh, inspire a leader, a facilitator, etc. Uh-huh. And like, the, the, ba- the bad side of that is, is the perception of these leaders is that they may perceive as arrogant and cocky. And so it's, you need to understand that that could be a perception of your confidence. Uh-huh. I, would, I wouldn't necessarily say that being overconfident is a bad thing. I think the perception, the perception of confidence may be a, ne- a negative uh, trait of confidence. Like um, 
people will be like, oh, that guy's just such a like a cocky jerk or like he's so arrogant. Right, right. And so it comes to the territory because confident people tend to be more like leaders and decision makers and like I'm confident in my decisions as well. They're just decisive. And, yeah, yeah. And so that, that could be that can come across as arrogant, which is the like the negative side of, of, of confidence. So I think I don't think you can be overconfident uh, when it when it comes to like personally. Mm-hmm. Um, some things that can happen in being overconfident is you may be impulsive and, and, and rush into decisions quicker and not think through them. And so the overconfidence may may bite you in the butt because could, you could have taken some time to think through a decision as well. Oh. Do you think that... I mean, I'm just thinking about like the, the moments in my life where I like step up and like try to take leadership over a room, you know? Like maybe it's... Maybe it's like a, a, a think session and nobody's kind of leading. So I'm like, okay, I'll facilitate, you know, and I kind of step up and nominate myself, you know. I, I always have this like Im- immense sense of self-awareness, you know what I mean? Like I'm, right. I'm worried that other people are not respecting what I'm trying to do. Uh, do, do you think that people who have this, this confidence or... Do you think that they they kind of have like the a facade? Do you think they're going through what I'm going through, or am I just not doing it right? Um. So in the end, so what you're trying to do is like you're trying to lead, right? Yeah. Like, what is the job? What is, what is the job of what is the job to be done of, of a leader, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's to facilitate the best abilities of those in the room. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not for self-glory, but, like, you still have to, you, you st- it, it, there's, there's a little bit of audacity required to stand up and say, okay, room, I'm going to need your attention, and I'm going to direct this conversation, and I'm going to direct the way that I hope we can get an output here. I have an example of, of that happening to me. Okay. So I was in Sydney this last trip, and we had to do a design spike where we had a Lowe's tells me about a group setting he was in where no one was really taking the lead and he waited for someone to take charge but no one did. Finally, he does and he leads the group of strangers. It was a mixed group on purpose, nobody knew each other and he leads them through a few discovery exercises to an eventual successful outcome. He tells me about how through his facilitation of the group, they were able to open up and contribute each at their highest ability. And soon, the whole team of strangers was working together as one under his leadership. I just wanted to ask, like, like what, what were you feeling when you're going through being you know taking control of a situation facilitating do you feel like i feel like worried that nobody's going to listen to you nobody's going to respect what you're saying i feel embarrassed because it was kind of like pulling teeth in the beginning like no one was like uh, i kind of just got like silent and like just looks and people kind of like not saying anything and like that's the like that's the worst feeling is when like you're not getting any feedback like i'd rather people be telling me that shut up and let me do the talking, then, like, no responses. Yeah. 
you know, and it felt like I was forcing them to work and, like, forcing a constraint on them, and, like, I felt embarrassed and, like, not validated that I was doing the right thing. I was, like, I questioned myself. Um, so you're you're questioning the the tactic that you're taking. It was kind of attacking your, your confidence a little bit? It was, 100%. How did you carry it forward into a place of, of productivity or, or, like, effectiveness? Uh, I muddled through it. I mean, I, I see it as a principle that, like, even CEOs right now, billionaire CEO are muddling through some process that's new to them. Or not, even if it's not new to them, it's, it's new to their peers or who they're talking to. Or if they have an idea that's crazy, the same thing. And so, like, I, I got that idea from Stephen Crux, don't make me think. Like, one of the things he mentioned there is, like, hey, even CEOs are muddling through the process. You're muddling through the process. And so you might, might as well get comfortable with it and learn <laughs> how, how to muddle through it because you're going to do it all the entire life. Get comfortable with uncomfortableness. Yeah, get comfortable in the uncomfortableness. Maybe this is the great solution for what people are calling imposter syndrome yes it yeah ex- i think so like yes it exists but there's nothing you can do about it so just get comfortable with that yeah I'm comfortable and embrace it because you're gonna do it your entire life there's always gonna be something new a new process that you're trying people that are new to you even if you've done it forever like, you may be in a room of people who have never done it before, and you, like, you can just question. Just, like, muddle through it, dude, and just, like, steal, steal your course, and two things will happen. You'll be right, or someone will tell you you're wrong. So you'll be right, and you'll learn, or you'll be wrong, and you'll learn. <laughs> That's a great attitude. <laughs> All right, man. I'm going to head to bed. Thanks for a chat. Does that help? I think so. All right, dude. Blows is a great thought partner. I'm really glad to have him in my life. I love the way that he helps me to think about things. (laughs) I think maybe contrary to Powell's opinion in this case, Los's confidence is well-deserved and genuine. So now all this talk about imposter syndrome has me going, and I'm really curious about the other people that I know. Working at Google these past few months have been really eye-opening for me to my own inadequacies and shortcomings. And I feel like a place like Google should be a hotbed for people with imposter syndrome. Being out here on this trip, surrounded with nothing but other people who are in a similar situation to me, I decided to sit down with a few Googlers and ask them about their own experience with imposter syndrome. So next, you'll be hearing the voices of two of my colleagues, Nick Sokrasik and Ross Popoff-Walker. Early on in my career, I received uh, very good advice, which is to always be looking for jobs which I feel unqualified for. And that's how to really make sure you're always stretching yourself and growing. And so I've attempted to follow that advice, but as you can imagine, it occasionally results in imposter syndrome. And 
even very early on, uh, I took a position which was predicated on obtaining a certification, which I felt I didn't really earn, or perhaps I earned much more quickly than I had a right to. And then very suddenly I was supposed to be the expert for an area which I had only <laughs> had very brief experience actually working in. And weirdly, that pattern has sort of repeated itself multiple times uh, through my uh, career of, I guess, about 10 years. Imposter syndrome to me is kind of uh, a given, I think, for me personally. Um, I have to say it's, it's probably because there's uh, an element of me that's an introvert and then there's an element of me that um, suffers from low self-esteem. I think it's probably both of those are somehow tied together. Um, so, you know, I mean, you think about uh, joining a place that's high performance like Google or a, a startup uh, where everybody's super invested and super committed. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty common feeling for me personally to have in those situations been filled with self-doubt in some ways. Well, my interpretation is that the knowledge economy is so complicated and even developing a small amount of proficiency in some niche area requires huge amounts of reading and effort and time. Uh, it's, it's virtually impossible to be a, a, a proficient in all of the areas that you ought to be for any given job. And so I think we're all sort of, you know, glancing to the side, looking at the other person to see if they believe what we're saying or not in, in some cases. And I think in the tech world, it's a, it's a healthy thing because we often are trying to move quickly. And as long as we're being respectful and we are actually uh, truthful about where our limitations lie, then we can all sort of bolster each other's gaps. So over overcoming imposter syndrome for me has, um, I don't even know if I have overcome it. So, you know, saying I've overcome it implies, uh, implies that, and I don't know if that's the case. Um, so we both work at Google and I definitely feel, uh, very frequently here that, um, uh, there, there are, are some things I'm just completely unaware about, uh, the extent to which we get to work with engineers uh, uh, in a collaborative way. Uh, there are lots of opportunities for that, and then there are lots of times where uh, I just don't understand what, I, and I have to sort of admit and ask, I don't know what that means, or uh, how does this work? Uh, so like productionizing code, or what do all these different terms mean of all these different data sources that pipe together? Um, <laughs> I've tried to fake the lingo. Um, but uh, I, I feel like I can always get a skeptical glance from somebody uh, when I use terms incorrectly. Um, I don't know I've, re I've really struggled in some ways to um, get feet under me here, even though I've been here now almost two years. Uh, and the one thing that I've realized is um, I just need to do the work. 
I think the best way is to have mentors and friends who you trust and who you feel comfortable confiding in. And really, everybody feels, I think everybody feels imposter syndrome at some point, and it's, it's easy to fixate on your shortcomings. And sometimes having people who you trust and who have a, a broader perspective or maybe view, view you as uh, you know, more objectively than you can view yourself, right. it can really help you see why you are qualified and why you maybe do deserve to be where you are. It's funny, when I was uh, in undergrad, I studied music and I was studying, like had a minor in music education. I taught at a charter school uh, and through that experience realized I would make a terrible teacher and it would never, I would never attempt to do it again. Um, but I had this chance to teach uh, design and I started doing that and I didn't, I have noticed that there are some students who are very sure of their opinions. Um, and they're very opinionated, very sure of their opinions, uh, and can be, for lack of a better word, really cocky. And then there are others who are incredibly unsure, um, to the point of just being very self-critical, um, uh, and, and not confident in the way they present work or, uh, are about themselves and yet incredibly talented, um. And so I've definitely, there have definitely been times when I've taken some students aside and tried to have conversations with them to essentially encourage and instill some sense of confidence and some sense of awareness in how talented and able they are. That's kind of something that I've kind of noticed here too, where uh, we work really fast and furious at Google. Um, everybody here is very good at what they do. And sometimes... The, the rare the rare times when someone has uh, like took taken me aside or a manager has given me positive supportive feedback um, I've noticed that in myself that I can sort of be have a lack of confidence or have a uh, a different view of the, the of, of my abilities or, or what I've contributed um, so I've seen that in students I've seen that in myself uh, and I wonder if that's just like a personality trait, that some people are more prone to imposter syndrome than others. I think it happens because once you get into these selective situations, it, in order to be there, you have to spin a story. And the narratives that are compelling never tell the whole truth. It's, it's, I think a good story always omits some some aspects of the truth in order to help the listener fixate on what's really crucial or important to the story. Are you talking about on your applications, for example? Sure. Yeah. Or it could be within interviews if you're, if the the organization's a a company. And so everybody knows life is, is messy and there's no black and white, but stories are often portrayed to be very black and white. It's an appealing, it's appealing construct to listen to a black or a white story, uh, and uh, you know, pure success is is an attractive concept. But when when you're spinning these stories, oftentimes people leave out the failures and the tribulations, and you only you're you're only putting the successes down on your resume, in right. most cases. And so in these these situations, it's easy to look. You're viewing each person that's supposedly your peer 
as this infallible, perfect construct, when in reality, they, they almost certainly had failures and all sorts of other problems in their life and are a flawed person just like everyone. Well, faking it to, till you make it is something that I've thought about doing for myself and, and probably have tried to do myself a lot. Um, in terms of the students that I've, wor- that I've taught or worked with who uh, come off as being uh, probably knowing more than they, than they really do, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think probably part of that is some sense of insecurity. Um, probably some part of that is a desire just to, um, just to create without limitations or restrictions. Um, when you're a student and uh, you have someone trying to show you how to do something, uh, you have to admit that you don't know how to do it and ask questions, ask for guidance, look for feedback. I mean, we just listened to Ange- Angela Duckworth talk and she talked about um, grit and how it's this process of receiving feedback and criticism, trying again, improving, evaluating yourself, receiving more feedback and criticism, trying again. Um, and so those, those students who do that are always the ones who I gravitate towards, who are like usually the ones I think are going to do extremely well. And surprisingly, often, more often than not, it seems like they also are the ones who question their abilities and have some sense of this imposter syndrome. Hello. Hello, Dr. Pauline Rose Clance. Yes. So far, we've heard from three people that I know personally and respect a great deal. Each of them are immensely talented professionals with a good amount of experience. And yet, all of them acknowledged at least occasional bouts of imposter syndrome. For the next few minutes in this episode, we're going to hear from a few experts in the field of psychological study specifically related to imposter syndrome. All of them are published on the topic, and... The first guest we'll be hearing from now is Dr. Pauline Rose Clance. Almost 40 years ago, Dr. Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes first coined the term imposter phenomenon in a paper they wrote together when they were still in grad school. Um, so, so what I'm doing is I have a, a small radio show. Um, we get a few thousand uh, people every, every week listening. And this week I'm talking about the imposter syndrome and All right. your name kept on coming up, but one thing was interesting is that in your uh, research and in your writing, you referred to it as imposter phenomenon, and I was curious yes. if, there, if there's a difference. Yes, there really is in that uh, the imposter experience that people have doesn't fit the criteria for a syndrome. It's not really a syndrome. You have to have a certain set of criteria to call something a syndrome. And I'm a psychologist, and, you know, I certainly know that it does not uh, fit uh, the criteria for a syndrome. Okay. And so many people use that probably because it's easier to say or easier to think about than a phenomenon. But uh, Dr. Suzanne Ines and I wrote the original article in which we, you know, co-developed the, the 
I'm going to jump in here and just make sure that that last part was understood. This is, again, Dr. Clance, one half of the team who did the pioneering work in the late 70s in identifying and bringing this topic to public awareness. Now, she claims that she doesn't classify it as a syndrome at all because it does not fit the definition of a syndrome. And it's at this point of the story where I realize I don't really know what a syndrome means. Okay, I just did a quick Google search. Um, <laughs> it says, it's a set of medical signs and symptoms that are correlated with each other and often with a specific disease. Hmm. I didn't want it to seem like a, a clinical syndrome when really it's an experience that people have that's important. And it can interfere with their being able to enjoy their successes, etc. And uh, it's not pathological. And so that's why, as a clinical psychologist, I really would never call it a syndrome. Hey, Marty, this is Travis again. Hey, Travis. How are you doing today? I am well. So, uh, important topic. <clears throat> I'm sure that I will have a very contrarian perspective on it. This is Dr. Marty Nemco. Dr. Nemco is a career counselor, professor at the University of San Francisco, and a host of a radio show, also in San Francisco. The, the notion of whether uh, the extent to which being an imposter is a, rea- is a reality uh, or it's some another of the millions of excuses for people not performing. First of all, it's very real. Uh, most people in almost every field uh, feel like imposters. There's two main reasons. One is the training in most fields is done by academicians who are long on theories and don't have a lot of um, valid evidence behind them. Um, and because fields are getting ever more complex. I teach in medical school at UCSF and there's just an insurmountable amount of knowledge. Uh, It makes it impossible to know it all, especially when you're trying to also handle the enormous bureaucracy that is provided by Medicare and the insurance companies. So people have a right to feel like imposters. Nobody really has a magic answer to anything unless you're a low-level clerk and all you're doing is stamping documents, you know, those in this category or not. So with the increasing complexity of your position and responsibility, the likelihood of feeling like an imposter is going to increase? Not necessarily, because when you've increased with in responsibility in your job, you've now had more real-world experience, so you're, you're actually acquiring some real expertise. Imposter syndrome is most likely to occur when you're a new graduate. Because you're expected to, you know, oh, you've got an MBA, you should really know a lot about how to prove a business. Oh, you've got a law degree, you should be know how to be a lawyer. You're, you're an MD, you should have to be a doctor, when you really don't know squat. Okay. Usually. So, people who have a lot of theoretical training but not practical experience? That's most likely. And most, most training, and, and ironically, the more prestigious the university, the more likely it is to be theoretical. If you go to Yale Law School, you will learn a whole lot about the theory of constitutional law. You'll learn a whole lot about the 
models of torts, you'll learn a lot about the history of the law, but you won't be able to bail somebody, you know how to get somebody out of jail. So you feel like an imposter. I love this story. Tony Cronson, who used to be, uh, Cronman, used to be the dean at Yale Law School. And he was awakened in the middle of the night by a friend who said, I got arrested for, I guess it was a DUI or whatever. Uh, and I'm in jail, get me out, man, I don't wanna be in jail. And here is the dean of Yale Law School, the most prestigious law school in America. I don't know how to get you out. Hello, Travis. Um, this is Denise Cummins. I received your email uh, query about uh, discussing imposter syndrome on uh, your podcast. I would be happy to do that if uh, the invitation is still open. Uh, either email me with a... Dr. Denise Cummins is the last of the three scholars to return my call. Dr. Cummins writes for psychologytoday.com and has also published a book called Good Thinking. Denise Cummins. Hi, Dr. Cummins. This is Travis Nielsen calling. Yes. Got your, uh, got your email. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, first of all, I want to say thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to be recording right away. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. And um, so about imposter syndrome, are there certain time, type of uh, demographics or personalities or something that we see it more often than others? Um, you see it a little bit more in women than you do in men. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, Usually, when you dig into it a little deeper, it's because women are a little bit more willing to admit that they feel that they're out of their depth. Um, also, women tend to want to focus on their deficiencies in order to shore them up. In other words, gee, I think I've got a problem with this over here, so I had better focus my attention on bringing that up to speed. Whereas, on average now, again, this is we're all talking averages here, mm-hmm. on average, uh, men tend to emphasize their strengths. So if there's something they're good at, there's something that they're not so good at or not sure they're good at, then, you know, uh, dollars to donuts, what they're going to do is emphasize the thing that they can do. So when people do uh, studies on imposter syndrome, um, usually there's, there's slightly more women who, um, uh, who admit to it or seem to fit the bill compared to men. Hmm. I don't know if I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Let's hear again from Dr. Clance and her discoveries about the types of people that tend to experience imposter phenomenon. I went to uh, a small liberal arts college that had tremendous criteria, you know, objective criteria, that people were truly, well, first we thought women, then pretty soon we, we learned, no, it was Dr. Himes and I learned no, it is. It applies to men as well as women. But mainly, I want to help people know that many, many people experience this just occasionally, or when they go into a new job or a new project, and certainly create creative people. I've worked a lot with artists and musicians, and creative people can certainly have that. Imposter phenomenon can come to us all, especially those of us in creative fields or in new positions of responsibility, and doubly so for those who are newer in their careers. But what can we do about it? 
I want some practical advice. I want to arm you, dear listener, with tools to combat and deal with what can be a consuming experience. Imposter syndrome is one is <clears throat> learning on the job at the elbow of a master or many masters. If I and it, frankly, this is the way I became a career counselor. I already had a PhD, and I swear, if I were starting again, I would drop out of, out of high school. I certainly wouldn't go to college. Um, I certainly wouldn't go for a PhD. Um, <clears throat> if I wanted to be a master career counselor, what I did was I watched great ones in action didn't treat them like gods, but learned where I could, then begged them to watch me, even though it made me insecure, I knew I was gonna get feedback. And then I would beg for feedback when I, when I first started seeing clients. Every client, at the end of every session, I'd say, tell me the truth. What did you like, what did you not like about the way the session went? And I would watch video of myself, and I, and I would listen to audio of myself. To this day, I host a radio show on NPR in San Francisco. I listen to every show on the way home so that I can keep growing and keep getting better. That is the best antidote. And self-study, I'm reading after, I've been a career counselor for a lot of years now. I am still reading all the time. I was saying, you know, just recently I was saying, you know, I think I'm a little weak in the area of kind of, there are some lessons that psychotherapists could teach me as a career counselor, but I've kind of poo-pooed psychotherapy. You know what, I'm gonna read some articles and books. So I read a couple of books by Irv Yalom uh, and and another book by Robert Curet, who uh, are, talk about the practical in the trenches what it really takes to be a great great therapist and that's informing the way in which I do my career counseling so the antidote to the imposter syndrome is practical expertise through self-study through being mentored have being watched and then watching the masters not necessarily in that order it's accepting the fact that every it's a rite of passage Everybody goes through this, especially the more, uh, again, the more, the higher you rise, the more responsibility you get. Um, everybody goes through this at one point or another, and you have to embrace those, those, uh, that anxiety and recognize what it's there for. Okay, um, because uh, you know we don't like to, to, to fear that we're going to be unmasked as a, as a fraud. Somebody's going to point at you and say, "Aha." We thought you were a grown-up and you knew what you were doing, but I know better, and I'm going to expose you to the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Generally, when you have those feelings of um, that kind of insecurity, they motivate you to do something. Okay. Uh, it, it motivates you to take a look at, aha, huh, why am I uncomfortable? Am I supposed to give this talk, or I'm supposed to do this interview, uh, or I'm supposed to whatever? And I have, I'm worried about being identified as an imposter. So I know what I'm doing, okay? You emphasize your strengths. You think you review that in your mind, what it is that you're good at. Um, and then you ask yourself, go over sort of the landscape of your emotions, okay? You have to get good at this. This is a skill like anything else. And when you get a hit, okay, something where the anxiety rises, that's usually a good signal to you that, you know what, maybe you want to spend a little time boning up on that is actually one way to calm the fears that you have of being exposed. Because the more confident you feel, the more in control you feel, the more, more prepared you feel, the less likely you're going to feel that you're skating on thin ice and someone is going to unmask you. When people, if they will keep a journal for a few days, so when they receive positive feedback, 
what do they say and what do they think? And a lot of people have been taught, well, you need to say for politeness, thank you. But inside their head, they may be thinking, well, I really don't deserve this, or I'm not sure uh, why this person is saying this to me. And then write that down, what you're thinking, and then counter it with, really, what have I done that's important here? And yes, I may not have lived up to what I would desire to do, but I also, this person is bright and confident, and they wouldn't lie to me. Special thanks to Drs. Pauline Rose Clance, Marty Nemco, and Denise Cummins, all three of whom surprised me when they answered my emails. To close the show today, I want to circle back to some of the comments made by designer Ross Popoff Walker. Not only does Ross work with me at Google Design, he also teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And from that position, he's able to observe a number of creatives early in their career. Ross has some great insights about the type of student that he feels deal with imposter syndrome the best, and who are the type of people that you'd want working along your side the most. When I think of uh, someone who I feel like had some sense of imposter syndrome, I think of this one student I had who um, had clear talent and ability in that the designs he did were always very precise. Um, he always did many iterations, so he put forth the effort to try things out many times. Um, he was always really, uh, this is a student that I had in a class, and so I'm talking past tense. He's, he was always very open and accepting to feedback. Um, I think that is probably uh, the most important thing, is to be aware and to accept that you don't know everything, that you have lots of room to improve, but if you really put forth the effort, um, ask questions, listen to uh, the responses, and really try to put that to work uh, iteratively, uh, that that you'll get better at what you do. So, you know, as I start to think about like maybe doing more teaching, teaching people who don't have like a formal training in design or something like that, uh, I'm I I would love to be more uh, involved. Uh, uh, and work with people who just have that desire and drive than anything else. Thank you to Ross and to Nick and to my long-distance co-host Carlos for contributing to today's episode. Next week's episode will feature a lot less airplanes and phone calls. Tune in every Tuesday morning for a new episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to stop by and leave a review on iTunes. Here's a review from Duke Frederick IV, posted in the iTunes store with five stars. Duke says, Great advice. Helpful discussions. Your show contributes to my own personal and professional growth. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Duke. We post fun things on Instagram. Our username is at Trevenlos. You should follow us there. You can also find our entire episode archive on our website, Travenlos.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.